What up, what up, Meepsters? This is Ryan Rainbro, and if you're hearing this, that means you're about to listen to one of the 99 free episodes of the Meep Meep podcast available wherever you cast pods. But keep in mind that there are new and unreleased episodes of the show on patreon.com slash meetmeetpod. So you'll want to sign up there to hear future episodes and also other side projects like Choo Choo, the show about soundtracks and contribute suggestions for future episodes as well. Will I listen to your suggestion? <laughs> There's only one way to find out. Patreon.com slash meetmeetpod. Bye! Welcome to Meet Meet, the Roadrunner podcast, where we go through the albums of Roadrunner Records with the artists who made them and the musicians they influenced. Let's roll! What up, what up, Meepsters? I'm Ryan Rainbow, and today, no cage will be left unlocked. No X will be left uncrossed. Because the album we are celebrating is the vegan straight-edge classic, Breed the Killers, by Earth Crisis. Released in 1998, this album is often overlooked in the Earth Crisis canon, in my opinion. So I'm hoping to be the overseer of this record and expose you to the truth. And we will be unveiling the truth, because the only killers they're breeding are these riffs, baby! This LP is hard as hell, and we're going to be talking about it with the Rumble of the Earth himself, bassist Ian Bulldog Edwards, and the voice of the crisis, Carl. But first, we speak with a former Roadrunner Records employee, Mike Ski of the band Brothers Keeper. But today he's Brothers Meeper, but Mike actually did the artwork for Breed the Killers, and he tells us all about how that happened and his career as creative director at Blue Grape Merch. I was employed as the art director for Blue Grape Merchandising, basically like a, a co-owned company that was shared offices with Roadrunner. That was from 99 to 2001, 2002 maybe. So my, I guess my early story starts out as just like a kid who did art and was fell in love with hardcore and punk and got into playing in bands and therefore like doing art for bands. And if you, I guess, speed up to the maybe a couple of years before the time frame that we're talking, I was in a, a band called Brothers Keeper that was um, from my hometown, Erie, Pennsylvania. And I had been traveling a ton up to Syracuse, New York. I had a bunch of good friends up there that opened a tattoo shop and uh, I would go up there to do guest spots to tattoo, you know, maybe at the time it would have been embarrassing for it to come up like in the company of people, but like earth crisis was one of my favorite bands. I had been, you know, I guess like known for doing art for bands, mostly because of my own band, but um, just like the association with folks in Syracuse, uh, just got to like meet the guys and was like a lo-fi like fanning out, but also just like respected them as like a band and their message. And I, I was straight edge and vegan at the time. This is just like, you've sort of struck me on a note where this is like a, a very like defining project for me in my 
in my life and in, as a, a career as a designer and an artist because I did that record as like a freelance artist, like on my own. And that's what directly led to me getting the job. So at the time I was in college, I was doing basically doing record packaging for bands like Earth Crisis for college credits. But what had happened was I knew that they signed to Roadrunner. I knew they had a new record coming out. So I actually wrote them a a physical letter that I mailed them. And I explained in this letter that I was a huge fan. I was a friend. I was, you know, vegan and straight edge. And their message was not only really important to me, but I thought that as a designer, I could understand it in a way that somebody else might not be able to. And I just kind of put it out on the line like that for him. And I just said, I, I think I, I believe that I'm the guy that should do the art for this album. And they wrote me a letter back (laughs) and it sounds like I'm making it up, but I actually like have the letter where Dennis wrote me back and said like, yeah, we talked about it and we decided that we want you to do it. And it was a, a huge, like a huge accomplishment for me because it would have been not only a record that I did for one of my favorite bands, but on their big label debut. Um, so it was an opportunity to work on a level that maybe I hadn't before. So the direct way that it happened, and it's just, it, it's again, it's just because it's such a defining project that I remember all the intricacies of it. I had a friend named Doug Spangenberg at the time. He was also hanging out in Syracuse a lot and was doing like videography. He was basically like touring with Earth Crisis as their roadie and merch guy. So when I had done the art for the Breed the Killers record and the big tour that they had directly when it was released was supporting Sepultura who was another band that I grew up listening to and loved. So Earth Crisis was opening for them. And Doug had hit me up and and told me that, you know, on this tour, they had basically become friends with Igor from Sepultura because he was straight edge at the time as well. And at the end of every set, they would, he would come on stage and they would play a Path of Resistance cover. So like through all these conversations together with Igor, he expressed like, oh, I really love the merch that you guys have. Like, who does your merch? And I had done, like, all of it. So he hit me up and was like, dude, you're not going to believe it. Like, Igor wants to talk to you about merch. Like, you should come out to the Cleveland show. So they put me on a list. I drove to the show. And that turned into me basically designing a shirt for Sepultura. And so, again, like, I'm in college, like, I don't know shit about the music industry. Like I was in a hardcore band on a hardcore label that was started in a dorm room. So like I didn't have any concept of like the fact that there was like companies that made money, like just making shirts and stuff for bands. So they just gave me a woman's number and her name and were like, just hit this person up and they'll take care of it. So it was, um, Uta Linhart. So I reached out to her, had ended up designing two shirts for Sepultura. 
And then that turned into her hitting me up a couple more times in the future. I did some stuff for Soulfly. And by the way, I'm like tripping the fuck out this whole time. Like it's like the coolest thing that I could ever like imagine. It's like a dream come true. So then, yeah, like that, that's how the relationship started. And then was summer, I guess summer of 98 or 99 might've been 99. I was on tour with Brothers Keeper and Disembodied and Uta had called me and basically said like, hey, I know we've never met. I don't know what you're doing in your life, but if you've ever considered moving to New York City, like we have an art director here and he's kind of a fucking dick and they didn't really get along. And she's like, I just really like working with you. You seem really nice. I think that we would get along. I would be like your day-to-day person. So I ended up like when I got home from tour, like packed up, went to New York, interviewed for the job. And then they, they basically offered me to come back up for a week and just work and see how it went. So I did that and it was super scary because I had never, it was like my first real job, you know? (laughs) And I'm like, basically like, going through machine head files and all this crazy stuff. So I I ended up getting the job, moved there in that, I guess in October of 99. And uh, that's when it started. And that's how I got the job. And I didn't really understand, like at the time, the relationship with Roadrunner, it was like, like I knew it was associated, but like when I got there, it was like just like an office at the other end of the Roadrunner office. Um, but it was super cool. It was like getting your dream job, like right out of college and being like, I don't even know what to do with this. Right. <laughs> Cause like, where do you go from here? You know, I just think about this like often because it's like a lesson in, and how many things could have been different if you didn't just do one specific thing, you know, like if I, and I think about this all the time as an adult, because in in my job here and in my life in general, it's like, there's so many times where you think of something that you think is interesting or cool or daring. And, and then you just, the first thing you do is talk yourself out of it. Or like, if you're not surrounded by the right people, you say an idea out loud and someone's like, eh, I don't know. And you're like, eh, okay, fuck it. And that's like how easy it is to like derail, you know? And that's, that's kind of scary. So I, I think back about that chain of events, like, well, what if I didn't write a letter? Or what if my friend just didn't happen to be on that tour? Or what if blah, 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 you know? Or what if like a very real thing was when I got offered that job, I'm going to like leave my hometown. I was like in a established band. I was like, you know, comfortable, like knew everybody, like felt like I had a life there. And I was, but I had always wished to live in New York city, had a lot of like talking myself out in and out of it. Well, that's uh, super interesting that you did the <clears throat> album cover before you worked for Roadrunner. I didn't realize that was the chain of events. I naturally thought that you worked there and then they were like, oh, hey, you do art. So do this album cover. So that's crazy. Um, do you remember at that time, like how you developed that particular artwork? Was it a collaboration with the band or you just kind of 
gave them an idea and they were like, yeah, let's go with it. I mean, it seems like it kind of alludes to like Illuminati stuff. And I didn't know uh, how much of that is you and how much of that is them. Yeah. I usually going into an album package. The first thing I do is ask them, ask a band to send me all the lyrics. And I just like go through the lyrics and pull stuff out. I always thought that that was like Carl's gift was to be able to read something very complicated and then turn it into something equally as complicated, but catchy and cool. Um, So I know we did have a lot of conversations. There was a lot of back and forth. I can tell you some funny stories at my own expense (laughs) that I'm sure the band would think was also funny, but I guess what, what I thought was cool about it was at the time I was, you know, I, I, I got into graphic design because I was trying to figure out how to make stuff. Right. Like I, I, I didn't, I, I was like a kid who drew like, so I could illustrate things, but I was always like, well, I need to get it onto a computer so I can turn it into a thing. And then when I was in, in college, I started to be like, well, I'm sick of drawing like tattoo stuff for albums because it was starting to kind of pigeonhole me. So I got into taking photography classes and just trying to learn all these other mediums so that I had the ability to like, you know, see a create a vision for a thing that wasn't just like a drawing or whatever. So I was kind of in this weird position where I wanted to make stuff on a computer, but make it still by hand. The actual cover of the record is like a three-dimensional object where it's sheets of plexiglass that have like sandwiched in between them, uh, different transparencies mixed with colors. And that's what kind of like gives it like a dimensionality. It's like not created on a computer, which is kind of cool. And then the actual bolts on the record cover, those are bolts that actually hold it together. So when it was made and to a point where I could communicate what it was going to look like to the band and they approved it, I took that object and had it like photographed by a photographer. So it's like lit from behind and that's what actually makes it kind of glow. So it's pretty, for me, it's like a pretty interesting process because typically like nowadays I would just be like, make it in Photoshop right? and it would take like 15 minutes, but I spent like two weeks on it, you know, I guess like my own memories of the thing, it was just really funny because this is, you know, really like pre cell phone, early internet. So the band was on tour while I was concepting stuff. And so everything had to be like communicated through like a pager. So I would have to like type a message or I would have to call a number, say a message to someone, and then they would type it through this pager system and it would page the band. But I didn't realize at the time that you're basically getting charged by the character. So I'm like, Hey guys, what's up? It's Mike Ski. I hope everything's awesome and tour's going well. And like on the other end, they're like, Jesus fucking Christ, dude, like cut it short. (laughs) So that's how all the communications was done. I was essentially FedExing them 
like versions of the artwork as I was making it. So obviously it's, it's like a very analog system that nowadays you take for granted, but you know, every two or three days I'm like FedEx overnighting some, you know, package of just like printouts to the band to see costing them money on this like pager system. And, and at the end of the day, I think I spent as much money sending stuff back and forth that I got paid for the whole project, which is kind of embarrassing, but also after the fact, that's pretty funny. Yeah, that is funny. I mean, sign of the times though, like you said, it's, it's such a time and place kind of thing. And that, and that being said, that album is very like cutting edge Mm -hmm. graphically because of what you were able to do, because back then people couldn't really, I mean, they could, but it was certainly even a computer generated image would have been, I mean, think about animated movies back then, you know, it would have been three years to make, you know, uh, something that probably takes 30 minutes to make now. Yeah. I mean, aside from the fact again, that it's, you know, one of my favorite bands records, there was just like, you know, a drive to make it really special and, do a really good job. So I was like doing all these like experiments. And again, I'm like in college. So I've got all these kind of tools from my school. Like there's like a a photo dark room with all the, all the stuff. And so the inside panels are all like photograms of actual like wrenches. So those are like made in a dark room. And then just like, like I was actually like, developing the film and making the prints and then like scanning them in and making it from there. But um, another thing that was kind of funny about it is I had this idea because I'm, you know, creating this package out of these like transparent objects with stuff printed on them. So the band was playing kind of near me. So I was like, Hey, I have this concept for a photo shoot with like the band members where I'm going to like basically show, show up with like a projector and put these like transparencies on the projector, and shine it on the band. So you like see the stuff like on the band members face. So I was, I had the idea, but I wasn't sure that it would work. So I took like, just like a bunch of like random like classmates from my school. And um, I did all these tests. I, I was going through them kind of recently and it's just pretty neat because it's like some random girl that I went to college with, like looking hard as fuck with like Earth Crisis camo <laughs> projected on their face. But the photos came out awesome and I was super excited about it and did a whole photo shoot with the band, um, just like backstage at the show. And uh, again, I, I have all the scans of them. I think they came out great, but there was a little bit of hesitancy at the last minute, like it was still kind of like looked at as in the hardcore scene as like pretentious to have individual shots that weren't live shots. So they ended up like scrapping them and went with that. Um, there's like a, just like a group shot on the back and that, that is like the same sort of effect, but that was done on Photoshop because that wasn't, it wasn't like shot that way. And are we talking about like an overhead projector? Like I had in elementary school. Yeah, exactly. Sick. Yeah, I just borrowed one from from uh, one of the rooms in my college. We'll be back after a quick break. 
If you love good music and good podcasts, you'll love Roots Music Rambler. I'm Jason Falls. My co-host Francesca Folinazzo and I talk to the singers, songwriters, musicians, and more in Americana, alt country, bluegrass, folk, blues, and beyond. We share our own takes on the latest news in the space and recommend new music for you to explore every episode. Come get to the roots of the music you love. Find us at RootsMusicRambler.com or go wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to Roots Music Rambler. Well, you know, uh, another big thing about this cover is that it's uh, got this bold red template, but you're telling me that you're in the Roadrunner offices, just kind of down the hall in the Blue Grape office. So uh, did Peter Steele pop in and be like, hey, man, maybe you should make this green? (laughs) No, but I do have a good Peter Steele anecdote if you want to hear about it. Well, it was one of the funniest after the fact days of my time there but at the time it was fucking terrifying so a little bit of like graphic design nerd shit is that i was taught on basically like you know adobe platform software but i learned on all these different programs that were just like taught at my school but weren't really the ones that were used often so like i learned page maker and they were laying out packages in Quark and I used freehand and they used illustrator, which is like the vector program. So I, I basically moved to New York. I'm like thrown into this position, you know, obviously I'm like ambitious at the time and excited about it and hungry, but it was very stressful because I was basically teaching myself software, pretending like I know what the fuck I'm doing in the middle of the first Slipknot record, like blowing up. So it's just basically like do Slipknot shit all day, make Slipknot shirts, make Slipknot jumpsuits, Slipknot everything. So I'm like trying to, you know, just like keep up with the flow and like learn how to do it and figure out what I'm doing. And at some point they're like, Hey, we need a bunch of typo shirts. Peter Steele's not really excited with a lot of the stuff that we've been showing him. He wants to come in and sit in the office with you and design the shirts together on screen. And I was like, holy shit, like that's cool, but totally fucking crazy. And I'm terrified. And especially when he shows up and he's just like such a, such a towering force, you know? So uh, he was, and, and, you know, like at that era, everything's just like, you know, fluorescent green typo negative, like thing with an arched type. And I was like, not super versed in like how to do that. It's like a trick in illustrator. I mean, now I'm like, it's like fucking joke, but like trying to figure out how to do it while he's sitting next to me. So I had the illustrator manual in my lap. And he's like, hey, what the fuck is this kid fucking reading the manual? <laughs> like, And I'm like, yeah, dude, like, uh, chill, chill, chill. But he ended up like being <laughs> You're like, be cool, be cool. Don't let them be know. cool, man. Be cool. I mean, he was like funny about it, but a little annoyed. And like it was I was embarrassed, but he was like also kind of generous about it. And it was like a cool memory. The The other funny part of it was that he was 
there, everyone was coming in being like, Hey, is there anything we can get you? And typically, you know, you're like, Oh yeah, no, I'm fine. Or I'll have a Coke or whatever. He wanted this very specific type of wine. So they're like, yo, like somebody go find this weird bottle of wine. So someone runs and they, then we bring wine back and they bring it in. He stands up and he goes, first I must shit. Then we will drink wine. And he goes into the bathroom and takes the shit and comes back and they pop this fucking bottle of wine. It was so weird. (laughs) Thanks so much to Mike for those stories and to hear even more, including one of my favorite quotes of all time, Check out our Patreon-exclusive episode on patreon.com slash meetmeep, where Mike and I dive into the Brothers Keeper album, Fantasy Killer, released on Trustkill Records in 2001. And that brings us to the voice of Earth Crisis, the man who pens their message and is a bullhorn of that information for all to hear, a man who has been called many things, mainly because nobody knows how to pronounce his name, and that is Carl from Earth Crisis, a, a true legend in my mind. And uh, certainly in yours, if, if not already, then by the time you're done listening to him talk, he tells us all about not only going from Gamora's Season Ends, their 1996 album on Victory Records, uh, into Breed the Killers on Roadrunner, but also back to Victory with Slither, which is my favorite Earth Crisis album, which I can't stop saying, and I won't stop saying. But Carl's a, an incredibly inspirational and passionate person, and I think you'll enjoy what he has to say. Well, we got a lot of tours um, during those years. You know, we'd go out for a one seven-week tour, come home, write, and then go out for another one. You know, we were going back and forth to Europe and Japan. So the band was definitely growing during that point in the timeline of our history. And we were, you know, reaching outside of hardcore as well. We played with Downset, and uh, we played with Sepultura, so and the Misfits. So the band was definitely growing, and um, Roadrunner approached us, and you know, if we were permitted to be the band that we that we were, that we are, we were, you know, very happy to come aboard. I mean, we loved Obituary and Sepultura, and. Fear Factory and Machine Head, like I thought all those bands were great and we'd be a good fit. And so you just thought that Roadrunner would be able to kind of spread your message a little bit uh, wider net than Victory was? I think so. You know, I mean, I feel like on a lot of levels, we had kind of conquered hardcore globally. You know, anyone that was a part of that world had kind of made up their mind whether they liked us or didn't. So I think it made sense being a message driven band with the whole vegan straight edge ideology. It made perfect sense for us to be on a label that could reach out to different audience. And so of course the label being a, uh, a kind of bigger machine musically, were you guys going into the album thinking you're going to do something that's going to kind of broaden that audience also, or did you feel like it was still business as usual when it came to writing the songs? 
I mean, we, we had a lot of artistic freedom with victory and we didn't take that for granted. Um, and I think, I think that was there with, with Roadrunner as well. The, I think the album that they actually wanted us to deliver was Slither. It was what we followed up with. But I'm, I'm to this day, I'm really proud of Breed the Killers. I think it was a very cool accomplishment and an interesting milestone for us in our career. You know, it was something that was very important for us to do was to reach out to a broader audience with, with the message in its pure form, which we did. I mean, the first thing that a person saw who got that record when they opened it, when they lifted the CD out of the tray, was like a four-paragraph essay about the environment and extinction and veganism as the antidote to, to those things. So on, you know, from that perspective, I feel like it, it was a total success. I mean, we went out and we, we toured with flames and pissing razors off that record. Um, Rob Flynn sang on it. We played with Sepultura in San Francisco and met some interesting people. You know, we met the singer of Faith No More and Jello Biafra was there. So a lot of cool things happened during those years. Do you feel like in retrospect, Breed the Killers is a neglected record in your canon from both you and the, the fans? Um, I don't know if it's neglected. Um, you know, I wish I could go back and retract the vocals. But other than that, I think that you know, when it comes to the lyrics and when it comes to the production, I think Andy Sneap did an amazing job for us. You know, we recorded at Pyramid and Ithaca, which is like where SOD and Anthrax and Testament did a lot of their albums. So we knew we'd get a very, very aggressive um, final product from them, and we did. And we went and touched up some of it at Electric Ladyland in New York. So that was fun, too, being there. I'm, you know, I'm definitely a huge fan of the doors and hendrix and a lot of the music from that that the late 60s so that was just cool to be there but as far as being neglected i'm not sure i mean i think it it still gets love when we play some of those songs live i guess that's kind of what i was referring to i don't feel like you really play a lot of the songs live you know i think the end begins and overseers and death rate solution i mean i think that the lyrics of those songs are important I think they're important to read now. They, I think they relate to a lot of what's what is actually transpiring. We'll be back after a quick break. You still loading them and heating them up with all your single shit you've been dropping. You feel me? Loading them up on. It, it only takes structure. And, and, you know, just paying attention to the climate of the game. Yeah. Nah, man. So do do your homies uh got a role in your in your little? You mean? Yeah, yeah. We all we all artists over here, man. I'm trying. Oh, yeah. I'm trying. Yeah. I'm trying. Oh, yeah. I'm trying to get them on there. Yeah. Look, look, look. We all artists, man. We go. You feel me? We gonna have this like. Bro, me and my man, like me and my man Kai, we be like, I don't know, we play, we play with this <laughs> shit right now. I got a lot. We play with this shit right now for for. I got a lot. Don't play with it. Take that shit seriously. You know what? The sound quality of the album is, of course, incredible. And uh, I think a lot of people may forget 
or maybe just not be aware of it because it was a, a while ago. And I know you guys are constantly getting new fans. You're a, a hallmark in the hardcore community now, even so. So, you know, some younger people may not realize that when Gamora's season end came out, um, a big aspect of it, like a thing that people really hyped up about it was how good the sound quality was. It was like, oh, it's a hardcore album, but it, it doesn't sound like it was made in somebody's basement. So I assume that, <laughs> right? I mean, am I, am I speaking out of turn here? I feel like that was like the, the thing that was heralded about it. It was like, it's a really good sounding hardcore recording. Yeah. And I think that integrity, um, marauder and turmoil, like that everybody figured out that, Hey, we need to put, we need to put the time, money and, and effort into, into the production. I mean, I think that our music was just as heavy as any death metal band. It just needed that, uh, that little bit of a boost and, during that time, it was finally happening. As far as uh, the vocals are concerned, though, I actually think that the strongest vocal performance you've ever done is on this album, so I would be bummed out if you re-recorded them. But uh, I also am what is known as a uh, slither apologist, and I know that uh, your vocals um, <laughs> sound very like, to me, they sound like they're very like inspired by Fear Factory, which of course was a Roadrunner band. Would you agree with that was kind of what you were going with when you were doing a lot more not just a lot more. You're doing like singing on that album. I mean, I love the singing on Believer Dimensions album. I, I definitely think that you know Fear Factory and Machine Head were ahead of their time. But what what we basically did on Slither is what we tried to do at the very very beginning with with the All Out War seven inch was a which was a mixture of those different vocal approaches, whether it was the clean singing mixed in with a more aggressive style and you know i had i had worked on some of that stuff i mean my mother and my aunt were both opera singers in europe so i had kind of put more time into being able to achieve what i wanted to as far as my range went and on slither we actually had the time and the budget so that i felt like it was a natural evolution it was a natural progression to that point and Slither, for what it's worth, too, I mean, it's it's a full-force vegan straight-edge album. You know, there's songs about animal rights and medical research and killing brain cells. So, I mean, again, it's it's the pure Earth Crisis message. But I, I think it was time to return to that very, very original idea and do it as correctly as we could. Yeah, I mean, Slither is my favorite Earth Crisis album, but I think that uh, people incorrectly think that it's more of a dramatic departure than it really is, especially compared to Breathe the Killers. I think musically, they're very similar. You know, I know that uh, Slither is often viewed or, or coined as like a, a new metal album because of the riffage on there, but those same kinds of riffs are pretty present in Breathe the Killers. Right. Is that because of the change from Chris to Eric, or is that just something that you guys were writing regardless of uh, the personnel? I would say during you know during those years, Scott wrote at least you know eighty five percent of everything. Um, you know, and we're the sum of our influences. You know, we like the more aggressive 
version of punk and thrash metal and New York City hardcore. So, I mean, that that's what we are. That's what we kind of stirred together into our sound. But Scott has always been the the primary writer. And, I mean, Eric was the primary writer for all the early Freya albums. So I think he is really, really good at, at melodic songwriting. And Scott was really, was and is very good at the more aggressive style. So those like single note riffs, those are mainly coming from Scott and not from the the changeover? Yeah, I think so. Because they continue on even past, not to get hung up on this, I just, uh, I think it's an important point because I feel like Slither get Slither and Breed the Killers for different reasons. I was saying Breed the Killers is neglected because I feel people don't really um, talk about it as much as they should because I think it's probably the hardest Earth Crisis album. And then Slither, when people talk about it, they talk about it for the wrong reasons because I think it's actually the best one. But even things after that, like something like Neutralize the Threat or something like that have, I mean, I feel like that some of those songs could be on Slither too. Those are the albums I'm most proud of. I think, I think that to the death, neutralize the threat, and salvation of innocence. I'm, I'm going to be happy with those for the rest of my life. And it's it's the same way with the most recent Freya albums. Like, I feel like I, I'm achieving what I always wanted to vocally and lyrically, and you know the the kind of guitar tone that I had always wanted as well. Any song where you say straight edge or say, you know, a lot of times, I mean, even on this album, and I know that a band like you, it could maybe um, grow weary writing it, but, you know, I still get hyped anytime I hear, you know, the, the words. I don't even want an allusion to it. I want the, the spell it out, straight edge, vegan. Like, I'm, that's what gets me stoked. Oh, me too. And, I mean, we're 200% proud to be vegan straight edge and to write songs to this day that, literally spell it out i mean we just did a seven inch that's getting released hopefully this summer and it's called vegan for the animals and that's the catch line from the song so i mean nothing will ever change when it comes to that no it's it's so sick and it it, it reinstates the values in me because sometimes it can feel a little alienating i'm sure you know better than i do about having those <laughs> uh those values but then when i have a song i can listen to and like kind of yell about it it's it's very empowering to me so i uh, i appreciate it that you you kind of realign me sometimes when i need it awesome <laughs> that's great that's the goal so the album of course is called breed the killers the song on the album is also called Breathe the Killers. Did you name it after that song? And if so, what was it about that song that uh, was so important to you to kind of name the record after it? Well, I think that, you know, the, uh, the white supremacist movement was gaining a lot of ground during those years. And uh, there was a lot of violence and terrorism in different parts of the world. And... Uh, we come from blended families and we have, you know, friends from all kinds of backgrounds. So we took it a little more personally. And that's why I thought it needed to be addressed in the way that we did with those lyrics. And does that tie into the kind of Illuminati uh, artwork with the album as well? For sure. That that I mean, the artwork is more of a nod to... Um, overseers and begins and death rate solution and we'd kind of touched on that before with fate of the neo-gods and smash or be smashed but i i feel like we really tried to spell it out 
with those three songs on Breed the Killers. You mentioned earlier, too, you know, working with Andy Sneap. At this time, he uh, is kind of in the the early stages of his production career. I mean, nowadays, he's a superstar producer. I think he plays guitar for, like, Judas Priest. I mean, he's all over the place. But at this point, he's kind of only done, I think, maybe Skin Lab and Earth Tone 9, maybe a, a Stuck Mojo. But he's certainly not, like, the, the big name that he that he is now. So what led to that relationship? Was that uh, arranged by Roadrunner, or did you guys know him already? We had heard those records, and Scott and Dennis and I were very impressed with them. So, uh, I mean, we asked and we received. So it, it was amazing to work with him, and he definitely has a true love for metal. And um, maybe two years ago, I, I was out in Buffalo, and I went to see Deep Purple and Judas Priest, and I was like, wow, that guy looks like Andy Sneap. <laughs> <laughs> and it was him. I had no idea that he had been playing with them. I don't know how I missed it, but it was a pretty cool surprise. And uh, Andy Sneap, of course, mixed the More Things Change album by Machine Head uh, just a, a year or two prior. So is that how you got connected with Rob Flynn, or was that uh, independent of that? I mean, I think Machine Head is phenomenal. I love his vocals. And we actually got to do that song live together when we played in San Francisco. So he came out and did it with us, which was, his voice was amazing. And was that on the uh, Sepultura Vision of Disorder tour? I think so, yeah. Yeah, and it it, it was an amazing tour. Um, and it was cool, too. Roadrunner, Roadrunner and Century Media were both kind of building divisions where there was hardcore bands, you know, uh, I think Century Media had Botch and Marauder and Turmoil and Roadrunner had um, Shelter, Both Worlds, VOD, Us, and Madball. So I felt like Hardcore was finally going to get some respect. Um, and we were finally going to get introduced to different audiences. So I'm, I'm glad we took that opportunity. And the Roadrunner that we signed to, you know, it was the Roadrunner of Obituary and Deicide and things changed very quickly and very drastically with uh, who was actually on that label. Yeah, especially at this exact time, you know, the like 97 to 99, the, the crossover and turnover of the personnel and uh, like you said, kind of the focus of the label itself, I mean, is, is dramatically different from probably when you signed your deal to when you exited it. But um, so I can understand that. So do you feel like maybe that's uh, an aspect of it too? Do you do you feel like it did, regardless of the fact that it was a short-lived relationship? Do you feel like this album did take you to that next level, or do you feel like you needed to do Slither before that happened? I think had Slither come out on Roadrunner, and if that was followed by To the Death and Neutralize the Threat, I think things would have been very different for the band, but obviously... I think the executives at Roadrunner were looking at a band like Nickelback and whoever else, and that was kind of the direction they wanted to go in with more of the radio rock stuff than metal. And has that ever crossed your mind to just straight up do like vegan straight edge radio rock? Um, I mean, that's nothing I would be interested in, but <laughs> I, de I definitely think that, uh, you know, let's say there was a pop punk band or a hip hop artist or a ska band. I mean, if they were to carry the vegan stri straight edge message through their music into to different audiences, that would be a great thing. I don't think it needs to remain exclusive to hardcore by any means. 
No, no, I don't think, and I don't think it has. I think it's uh, especially veganism. Maybe straight edge is not doesn't have the the upswing, but you know, veganism nationwide, worldwide is uh, is ever growing with um, just people being more open about it, and it just being more of a movement to. I mean, even Miley Cyrus, she was she was hyping up veganism for a minute there for for a couple of years. That's awesome. Well, I know that you mentioned as far as like re-recording the vocals, that's probably something you would do differently with the album. But is there a, a favorite aspect that you have to it? I mean, I felt like the whole thing was it was a victory, you know, because like I mentioned earlier, we wanted to reach a broader audience and we loved the bands on the label at the time that we signed. You know, we were already friends with John Joseph from Both Worlds and Freddie and Hoyer from Mad Ball and all the guys in VOD. I mean, we had been playing together for years, so it was cool that we were all gathering on this label, but, you know, it unfortunately didn't work out the way that I had hoped, but, I mean, it didn't stop any of us by any means. Thanks so much to Carl, someone whose words have helped shape or soundtrack my life in one way or another for a long time, and whose dedication I'm very grateful for. You know, speaking of dedication, as the only vegan member of Kelvin's God Squad on HBO's The Righteous Gemstones, people often ask me how to eat for strength on a vegan diet. And how the hell should I know? All I consume are donuts and rock stars. But there's a new book out called The Way of the Vegan Meathead, Eating for Strength, now in its second edition. This is for those looking to up their athletic performance on a vegan diet. Hopefully it'll prevent people from trying veganism and bailing, especially when fitness goals are involved. It's written by Daniel Austin, who fronts Tooth and Claw with Earth Crisis guitarist Scott. And Daniel's an award-winning powerlifter, so he knows what he's talking about, and he's not even paying me to plug this, probably because he knows I love the information but really hate that title. Uh, I guess it could be worse, because I used to know this dweeb who used to say Tofu Head. But anyway, check out the book at veganmeathead.com and start getting awesome. So Mike helped us understand the aesthetic, Carl guided us through the message, but now we need the sound. Ian Edwards, a.k.a. Bulldog, will help carry us through. Breed the Killers is actually the first album to feature Ian's brother Eric on guitar. But we're all family now. This is the first album that you guys have where your brother is on guitar, right? Versus Chris. So how did that Correct. that change in personnel come? Uh, basically, it just was, you know, we had, uh, I guess at that point, we were changing direction career-wise, and like people kind of had different uh, visions of where they wanted to go with music and everything. And I think like, uh, and Chris at the time, his, his father was very ill. You know, he had like terminal, um, I think it was emphysema. And, uh, so basically he kind of like, you know, had, had to sit out some tours and stuff like that. And then I think in the long run, we just, you know, we, you know, he started doing his own band and we, uh, you know, kind of just got, I guess went different paths, you know, and then Eric, my brother was actually, I, we were trying to get him in the band before we got Chris in the band, but he was doing different musical endeavors as well. Some of his bands like Cross Section, Beta Minus Mechanic, 
we're leaving Firestorm, which was Ben, you know, Ben did all at war Firestorm. Destroy the machines. We we're about to go into the studio. Ben departed. I can't remember if he quit or I, yeah, I think he quit or, you know, he had, he had a rough time touring. Like, I don't think he liked touring too much. So he kind of, we were getting really into touring and being very active. So basically we were going into coming out of Firestorm, going into about to go into the studio for Destroy the machines. And that's where I asked my brother. I'm like, Ben just quit. We need a guitar player. You want to do it? And then he was already committed to doing his bands. And then I was like, well, you know, I actually know somebody else from school. And that was actually Chris, who was playing with a band called Solstice, which was also a Syracuse hardcore band. And, you know, we're all friends. Syracuse had a really strong uh, scene back then. And so I just, you know, I asked Chris if he'd be interested in doing it. And he did. He joined. And then we went to the studio, did Destroy the Machines, and uh, basically, and I think actually Scott recorded all the guitars on that. So because Chris kind of came as the record was about, we were already like committed to going. We we're like starting to go to the studio and everything. So he kind of joined at the tail end of that. Um, so Destroy the Machine comes out. We tour off that. Chris was on Gamora Season Ends as well. And then as we that's where we kind of like shifted directions and basically came open to my brother joining again. And that was coming or going into the studio for breed the killers. And he basically started with us. Like, I mean, like we went on tour with Madball. Um, it was a huge, huge infamous tour for all of us, but it was Madball, Scarhead, Hatebreed, Blood for Blood. And it was one of the, you know, one of the best tours we ever did. And, he was, he luckily, you know, jumped in right at the start of that tour. Like basically like learned the songs a couple of days before that tour jumped in and basically was in the band from there on. And we, we had already pretty much recorded breed the killers as well as a kind of like a four piece for that too, because every time we go in the studio, it seems like we're in a transition. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, <laughs> so yeah, he basically um, joined at the tail end of coming out of the studio there. So the yeah. timing just kind of finally worked out. That was uh, something that you kind of always wanted. And then uh, around this time is when it all kind of came together where you guys were going through a transition. He wasn't doing the other projects he was previously involved in. So he could kind of move into that role. Correct. And, then, you know, I mean, me, basically me, Scott, and like, we're all from like basically the same part of town, uh, North Syracuse. And, you know, we're already super tight friends and everything. And like, you know, like, I mean, Scott, I don't know Scott since I was in, junior high or no like ninth grade i think yeah ninth grade and you know scott was big time metalhead skater and i was a big time metalhead skater and my brother was the same and basically so it was like a no-brainer getting him in the band it was just yeah the timing worked out at this point where we could actually have him join <laughs> so yeah so he joined and uh yeah he's been in the band ever since you're saying you knew scott even since you were like in middle school did you already have the nickname bulldog back then Yes. I had, I had the nickname Bulldog basically as soon as I joined the band. I actually got the nickname. I remember the drummer <laughs> gave me the nickname. And it was like everybody had like, you know, straight edge names, like nicknames, you know, and then they're like, you know, like Scott Straight, Mike Edge, or Vegan Mike Edge or something like that. Carl, you know, Carl Crisis, whatever. And then they're like, what was the name? Name Ian. And they're like, Bulldog. And I was like, oh, I'll take it. That's cool. Sticks out, you know, and it stands out. So. But yeah, I've been called that since the basically the first record, you know, all at war era. Is there a particular reason or is it they were that was just the first thing you heard and you were like, That sounds sick, let's go. 
Yeah, I mean, I didn't pick it. They, they just nicknamed me that, and it just stuck. This is one of those things that stuck, you know what I mean? <laughs> stuck with me, you know. No, so. no, I'm I'm all about it. I don't want you to think I'm criticizing it. I just, uh, I thought you were going to be like, well, you know, when I was a young child, I had a bulldog, and we kind of looked a lot, you know, I didn't know what it was called. Um, no, no, just, uh, it was like kind of like a random, you know, it was supposed to be funny, and it just kind of stuck, you know what I mean? So it was kind of like a random, what can we name it? And it just, that was the name that came up, and then everybody stuck with it, so. Well, Chris, after Earth Crisis goes on to be in Brand New Sin, who famously record the theme song for Paul White, the big show for World Wrestling Entertainment. Well, it's a big show. And you yeah. are now a Carolina native, and you have a wrestling gimmick built in, Bulldog. So are you a wrestling fan at all, or have you been in- integrated into that culture? Yeah, I-, I dabble in and out of wrestling, you know what I mean? There's certain eras like... Obviously, when I was a really young kid, I loved wrestling. And then there was kind of a resurgence in my late teens. And then, you know, then then when we, you know, when I, my kid, you know, my kid got into it, obviously. And then we took him to see wrestling. CM Punk, when he was at his prime down here, they came through. And, uh, you know, I, I dabble. I'm not going to say I'm a full on still, but I, I do appreciate some wrestling. <laughs> well, like you mentioned, uh, you know, going into Read the Killers, or maybe he's just coming out of Gamora's season ends, it seems like there's a uh, a directional change for the band. So what do you think is the biggest difference between Breed the Killers and Gamora's season ends? Not just like sonically, because of course the recordings um, are just kind of completely different with you having Andy Sneap. Um, I mean, for us, to be honest with you, we always try to like, we never wanted the last record to sound like the last record, you know, or the, the newest record to sound like the last record. So like, that's why up that at that point, like almost every single of our, you know, one of our records had a different direction, you know, and that's why it just, and Gamora's was our full on, like, let's just experiment with different ideas and sounds. And I mean, Gamora's, we were, you know, we were, you know, like smashing stuff with pipes in the studio, recording that, like playing, I was doing like two to three bass tracks, like overlaying and like doing harmonies and stuff. And, playing a fretless bass, wah wah pedal with a lot of distortion. And, you know, obviously Carl's vocals were very, uh, you know, like they were very strong and like very like more just, um, I guess, rageful screaming, like, um, you know, like crazy pitches that, you know, were really kind of unleashed compared to like destroy the machines. You know what I mean? Like there was more range and everything and guitars, same deal, like just very experimental drums, everybody. Like that was a record we really, kind of went crazy with all these different ideas and like anybody had an idea, let's try it. You know what I mean? And then I think with Breed the Killers, that was more like, you know, we wanted to be a tight sounding, very, very tight, basically. And like very, I think big sounding. And, you know, like in that one, we were kind of trying to go more towards, you know, like a metal core, um, you know, cause we always loved like, you know, Machine Head and Fear Factory and Obituary and, um, you know, we were trying to get more like just that bigger, tighter sound where Gamora's was kind of like more open and, you know, like it wasn't as, we weren't worried about it being as tight as I guess what I'm saying. Like, and then Gamora's, or I mean, uh, Breathe the Killers wanted to be really tight and big sounding. And we had a, you know, like you said, a bigger budget. Andy Sneap brought a lot uh, to the table for us, taught us a lot of things that we didn't know about guitar sounds, drum sounds, and you know, even helped us with, you know, like writing some guitar solos and even, even did a little, little, uh, 
guest vocals on overseers, you know what I mean? So there's a lot of, lists, a lot of stuff that he brought to the table that was definitely helped with our, that record as well. Yeah, Breathe the Killers just sounds so huge, and I think it's like the, the hardest Earth Crisis album, like as far as just like tough and mean sounding, it's like almost the scariest, maybe. Yeah, and I gotta say, um, that is a great record, and and I think, like you said, hit the nail on the head, is basically it did sound bigger, meaner, and, uh, you know, I also recorded this one in Pyramid, which we recorded that in Ithaca, New York, which is, you know, like right, it's right next to Syracuse, probably about an hour away. And uh, they had a lot, you know, that, that was a, uh, a lot of big records, metal records would come out of there too, you know what I mean? So it was, like the whole thing was just an amazing experience for us, to be honest with you, because we're, you know, we grew up listening to bands on Roadrunner and, and we were heavily influenced by bands of Roadrunner and then to be part of the Roadrunner family was pretty amazing for us. Whereas they're known for these metal bands that you're mentioning, like Obituary, Machine Head, they're not really known for hardcore bands other than maybe Madball at that time. So did you have any hesitance there or it was all positive vibes? It was all positive vibes. And because um, we, we, that's the stuff we loved growing up. You know what I mean? Like, you know, like a, like obituary, I remember, you know, Headbangers Ball era, like, you know, all that stuff. Like, obviously, our sound, we, we come from, you know, me personally, I come from big time, uh, you know, thrash metal. Scott, you know, Scott and me, like I said, we grew up together wearing, you know, Slayer shirts or obituary shirts or, you know, Metallica, obviously. And skate, you know, we had the long hair, Vision Streetwear pants and skating and but like, like a hybrid, you know, like a metalhead and a skater, which, you know, I mean, back when we were, it was usually one or the other back then, you know what I mean? So we were kind of like in between. And, uh, but that's the thing, I, I was more, I would say, influenced by that kind of metal. So no, it definitely did not intimidate me or scare. I mean, it was actually, it was one of our goals was to get on that label, to be honest with you. Oh, that's awesome. I didn't, uh, I didn't know that that was like an ambition of yours. I, Obituary is such a, a cool band too, because it really seems like they, without even trying, just kind of bridge that gap between death metal and hardcore, right? It just seems like if you like, if you like one, you, if you like hardcore, you also like obituary for some reason, even though sonically it doesn't really make sense. It just completely does make sense when you see them and they kind of seem like hardcore guys playing that death metal style music, especially back in the, in the nineties, like you're talking about headbangers ball. Yep. And when I was like, uh, 13, I was in a, uh, basically like a death thrash death metal band from Syracuse with, uh, and actually used to cover obituary, like slowly rot. So, you know, like they, they were a big influence even before I, you know, and that's when I was just, I was in the hardcore, but more, you know, I was more into the judge, like the New York straight edge, like a little bit harder sounding, like more integrity, more like more of the metal stuff. You know what I mean? And that's, cause I always looked at hardcore was like, okay, like hardcore is like the metal without the, the glam solos in it. You know what I mean? You just take out the solos a little more raw. You know, I mean, that's the kind of stuff that really, so it was always a metal kind of edge that drew me into it. Now, this album has a lot of those like single note riffs on it that were kind of prevalent in what one might call the new metal scene that we look at retroactively. Of course, we didn't call it that. Then, actually, what I remember everyone calling (laughs) new metal at the time was crossover, which is funny now thinking because crossover, when we say it, we think of like. DRI, but uh, were there bands of that ilk that you were into, uh, like a, like a Deftones or something like that that you felt influenced by at this time? Um, I love Deftones. <laughs> so 
I, I uh, yeah, I like the, the new metal stuff. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm like I like a lot of like I like basically all kinds of music. You know what I mean? And and the new metal stuff, obviously, like I don't like the super cheesy stuff. And a lot of people think, you know, like our first record, all, our EP, All at War, like Carl kind of raps in All at War. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah, he doesn't kind of rap. Like, he's, yeah. he's rapping. Yeah, and that thing, and everybody's like, you know, when we did Slither, everybody's like, oh, you know, and I'm like, yeah, this is our roots, man. If you like All at War, I mean, it's a little more obviously you know, higher budget and everything, but it's like, you know, I'm, I'm, we all grew up liking rap too. You know what I mean? Like public enemy. And, you know, even me, I was big time Wu-Tang, you know what I mean? I love Wu-Tang. I mean, we'd be on tour listening to, you know, this, whatever Prince 10,000 maniacs, you know, listen to corn when corn came out. Um, you know, at the time we were like blown away by that because, you know, like this band comes out and tunes to be like, what is this? You know what I mean? And like, it was so heavy that, you know, I mean, it was just like, it, it was, we looked at it as like a, a new direction of that many bands weren't doing at that time. And, and like a new sound, you know what I mean? And then, you know, as it got kind of watered down, obviously that's where it got kind of cheesy with, with all the, you know, like the bands and, and a lot of its lyrics too. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't think that really influenced that re- this record at all, though. This was like more of our metal core. You know what I mean? Like I would say if anything, probably more influenced by like obituary and like more of a bouncy metal. Like, you know what I mean? Like, like I always like a good groove, like Madball or something like that. It's always got a good groove and it hits hard and it, but it's heavy. And I think like that kind of, I mean, in some songs, uh, you know, I like, you know, I wrote a couple parts on there and they were definitely influenced by Madball, to be honest with you. And because they always had that hard bounce that I was, you know, that's, that's more my flavor. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, no, that's what I'm into. That's what that's what I love about this record, and that's what I mean. Slither's my favorite Earth Crisis album. I'm first to tell anybody go. that yeah. will will listen. In fact, it's funny. Um, I'm sure you experience this way more than I do. But when Slither came out, I loved it, and all my friends made fun of me. But now I feel like it's like aged very well. I feel like people look back on it and go, "Oh, you know, it's actually pretty sick." But like at the time, it was uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was frowned upon. Well, yeah. Well, to be honest with you, like at that point, like we. You know, we reached a point in our our band that we were just like, you know, we we've kind of we, at that point we were like touring like you know like I mean we I think we did the math we toured like seven months out of the year one year and and the problem was the touring was going more and the money was going down <laughs> you know what I mean the t- the tour was getting longer and the money when you come home was like less you know it was just getting really so I think at that point we're like you know and that's the thing I mean and one thing we've always said that Earth Crisis is about the message and trying to get the message to the masses, you know what I mean? So the more people that hear the message, the better, you know? And like, and yes, we, we are hardcore, a hardcore band and, and that's our roots and we're loyal to it and we love it. And, but we're not, you know, we, our music was, we were trying to reach a broader audience sometimes, you know, we always wanted to play to like Slayer fans or, you know, Anthrax fans or, you know, like Sepultura, we, you know, like we, we, knew that those kind of kids would love our music if they got the chance to hear it, you know, and, and those are the kind of kids that hear it and might be turned on to, you know, some of the stuff that our band's about, you know, open some new eyes, you know? Absolutely. No, I mean, I mean, and I don't think, like you said, it was even that far off from 
what you guys maybe even started doing with All Out War. It just kind of sounded better. It sounded a little slicker. So people, uh, and because it was at the time the popular sounds, if anything, you might be pioneers of new metal and not want to <laughs> take that uh, <laughs> take that crown. But um, but I understand what you're saying absolutely, and and you know spreading the message further in a way that uh, was still authentic. Yeah, you know, we did the actual, uh, the first Ozfest. It was actually the f- two shows, and we did we did San Bernardino. Um, and that was like, it was before it was a tour. It was like, it was two shows, and it, it was an amazing experience. But yeah, Cold Chamber did open, and they did wear some Jankos. And VOD, I think, ended up doing the tour, or they did the first full tour. And um, I think they did wear Jankos for that, too. <laughs> <laughs> now, what you seamlessly threw in there was you were like, yeah, we were listening to Corn, Prince, and then you just casually mentioned the 10,000 Maniacs. Yeah, and I'll, and, and let me, you know, rephrase that. Dennis, the drummer, made us listen to 10,000 Maniacs. No, I'm just kidding. But no, he, <laughs> we, did, we, did, we did listen to it. We listened to uh, Sade. We listened to... I'm just saying everything was playing. You know what I mean? Like, touring, you're touring that long, we listened to everything. Sunny Day Real Estate, I love, you know what I mean? Like, so, me personally, you know, I, I listen to all sorts of stuff like Dennis um you know he and that's a big thing that I think also I want to mention with that record and kind of has a lot to do with that sound is Dennis the drummer is big time um you know he like loves probably hip-hop the most uh, and listens to and it and it kind of you can hear it in his drumming you know and and that's what we always liked about his drumming when he plays he kind of plays behind the beat and he finds that groove and it had a lot to do with the sound and that's why like you know like that record has a lot of like that kind of groove, like people, you know, you, you know, if you said it was influenced by, it's more of that bounce hip hop influence in the beat that kind of, and then, you know, line up with the guitars, but it kind of gives it that laid back bounce to it. You know what I mean? And something like ultra militants or something like that, you know, that's uh And I think there's a lot of, like, one of my favorite songs in there is uh, Un- Unvanquished. A lot of those, like, Unvanquished is, like, the first time a lot of Dennis's beats back then were, you know, like, it was everything was hi-hat. You know what I mean? Like, let's, if we're, you know, we're riding apart out, it's hi-hat. And then that was the first record that I remember, and I, I kind of had a lot to do with it. I was like, play that beat, but play it with the crash instead of, you know, the hi-hat. You know, and he's like, nah, I don't, I don't know about that. You know, and then we're like, like, just try it, just try it. And then we kept doing it, and we're like, and then it kind of became more, gives it that open sound, like the now this war has two sides, that part at the very end where it goes into the halftime thing, like, that's when we started doing that. I mean, before, everything was hi-hat, you know what I mean? Maybe hi-hat and ride, that was it. Nobody, <laughs> nobody wrote a beat on the track, you know what I mean? Which opens it up and makes it, kind of had a lot to do with, with that record, with the changes of sound, too. Now, your bass tone on this album is super thick, and you kind of mentioned earlier that on Gamora's Season Ends, you double-track bass, which is something I've never even thought of doing before, but that's that's crazy. <laughs> um, there's lots of songs on here with like kind of like breaks, where it's just bass and drums. That's like a, a thing that happens throughout the album that I don't think happens as much beforehand, or maybe it's just not as notice- noticeable, because it's not as like cleanly cutting through, but... Uh, 
Is that something that you carried over with this? Did you double track your bass on there? Um, I did not, but I will say that I give a lot of credit to, um, we did this, the band, this band called Tap Resistance, sure. which was like the Earth Side Project, and basically recorded at Normandy Sound with Tom Storrs, who recorded... Everybody. Um, everybody said. Yes, everybody. And <laughs> he turned us on to the, because we loved the Marauder Master Killers record, and he turned us on, and they recorded there, obviously, and we, he turned us on to the Fans Amp, which became the, the staple for <laughs> hardcore bands and metal bands, sound, bass sounds for almost like every band. Like everybody I knew had the Fans Amp. And, uh, but basically, it, for Gamora's, that was part of the, the experimental thing is we were pumping, you know, like guitar distortion on the bass and we had my amp crank. That thing is magical as far as like getting that deep overdrive distorted sound to it. And uh, basically everybody, you know, like I said, everybody that I knew was like, had the sand in. Cause also it's a DI pedal. Like you can just, you know, plug it right into the I've played shows without even having an amp and just use the sand in to DI it in. Oh man, yeah. The Sanzam was definitely a game changer. I mean, probably for me later on in life than it was for you, but the the Sanzam <laughs> with the Tech 21 pedal was like that's how you cut through, how you could finally be heard over all the guitars. Yeah, yeah. And it, it, like I said, it's just that perfect mixture. Well, being a fan of other Roadrunner bands and just the the general sounds that you've mentioned, you know, Machine Head of course were a big purveyor of the bounce riff themselves and of course rob flynn is on this album he's on one against all do you remember how that uh, collaboration happened was it through andy sneep because he had just mixed uh, their record uh i think it was that and yeah rob flynn was i mean super you know he's super awesome dude that like basically liked the band and he uh i think yeah i think andy sneep did and i actually heard a rumor i don't know if it's true or not but that Rob Flynn loved the more season ends and actually used to warm up to it before they play. That's what I heard. I don't know if it's true or not, but I was like, that's pretty awesome. Cause of course we loved machine. We loved the first uh, Roadrunner release that, you know, that they put out basically every record they put out, but, uh, and we loved the burning red and that came out right at the same kind of time. So yeah, I think Randy Steve had something to do with that. I remember we sent it to him. We didn't see Carl was just like, Hey, we just, we're just going to do this one part right here. And then basically, um, we got it back while we were in the studio and we didn't, we didn't know what we were getting and they played it we were like, holy shit, that was amazing. So like, yeah, he killed it. And, uh, yeah, Andy Sleep, I did CD, like, helped, you know, organize like we did the, the, you know, the info and everything. But, yeah, we, we were super stoked with what Rob did with it. Because we, like I said, we kind of just gave him an idea, like, yeah, this one little part in these lyrics. And, and, you know, if he keeps saying the same thing over and over again, but he kind of, like, flavors it up, you know what I mean? And puts a little little Rob Flynn uh, flavor on there. It definitely made the part, you know, made the part. You know, he made it, like, super catchy and amazing. We're super stoked with it. Yeah, super cool moment on the album and just in the, the canon of Earth Crisis. And that song in particular is one of the... Uh, more i guess adventurous maybe songs on on the album because it has that cool kind of like almost like black sabbathy riff at the end of it yep yep love that and i and that thing is you know like that is definitely like uh it fits with you know the rob spoon thing and everything too you know what i mean so it was uh you know like it, it that song in general that's one of the 
strongest songs in that record for sure. So, but I, I used to love showing off this record because it was, you know, when we released it and, and touring off it, we got to play all the songs, you know what I mean? And um, there's definitely some good ones in there, but we used to play them all. Like, so, I mean, actually, and that's the thing to mention the one against all, we got to do that with Rob Flynn a couple times. Um, we, we toured with Sepultura and it was, we were playing San Francisco and he did the vocals live with us, which was amazing. And then we, I think we were tour, on tour with last show. We played San Jose and he did it there again. So we did get to do it live for at least people in that area got to see it. <laughs> wow, you so, did a tour with Glassjaw? I had no idea about that. Yeah, we toured um, when they first, they they just got off the Deftones tour and we were just getting off of the Flames and Skin Lab tour. Another uh, kind of musical outlier on this album is on Wither. There's like full on guitar solos. So that was pretty interesting, right? Yeah. That one was a cool one. And some, if you could tell in the beginning, some pitch shifter in the vocals. Death metal-ish sounding stuff. Um, yeah, it's a nice bass and drum opening to that one. And uh, that's one of my favorites on there, too. I'm not going to lie, it's a good one. Um, but yeah, a little bit of guitar solos in there. More like a guitar lead, we'll say. You know what I mean? Not really a solo. Like it kind of, it kind of goes with the part. It's kind of a lead over the part. You know what I mean? It kind of repeats. Yeah, I think you know, sound bust up some solos. And there, we always, you know, you can never have too many souls, you know what I mean? Everybody, every, you know, they always, we can, most of our songs, like, usually we got one or two records got souls in there, but uh, we can always have more, you know, I like souls. Um, but yeah, that, that song's a great one. That one's like, uh, that one's got all the, the stops, it's got the, you know, the bass drum intro, the pitch shifter vocals, it's got a good, good bounce to it, it's got everything, you know, it's right up my alley as far as uh, one of my favorite songs on that record. Now there's a the album closes with a song called Echoside or Ecoside. That was a remake of it. We want because that was recorded on Art War and the seven inch, very very low budget. <laughs> um, that was like uh, shoot, and that was you know probably under you know like that was probably a couple hundred dollar recording in Penguin Studios in East Syracuse, New York. And basically that one, we were always playing live still and it had a great reaction. And we're like, we got to get a nice budget recording of this, like big budget recording and make, you know, big sound. So basically it's the same song. We just basically uh, just did a clean, high budget recording of it. So it's, and that, and then we did the live on the same, you know, I guess the special, yeah, extra tracks or whatever. Yeah, there was like, uh, what was they got? No Allegiance. And Standing Corpses, which had a nice, that one had a nice uh, little bass drum groove in there too. And I think those songs, we just couldn't fit them all on the record. So we just, we still wanted to release them and it worked out where we could do like Eco Sides. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. Um, no Allegiance is also on All at War. So that's kind of a recording of that, you know, like, and that got released as a live song. And then uh, Standing Corpses was also live. And, but that had like, that one we wanted to put on the record, but we just didn't have, you know, enough room in the 
too many songs to put on there. You know what I mean? But it worked out where we got to release it with it eventually. So it was a song from Breed the Killers that just didn't make it to the final cut, so you put that live bonus track when it got re-released? Exactly. Now, you mentioned, of course, that the, the message is always more important than anything else. Is there a certain song with a, a message on Breed the Killers that you think is uh, particularly poignant? I would say that it's just kind of the whole theme of the band and the record is, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of stays with our, our whole overall vegan straight as message that, message that we've always kind of pushed, you know what I mean? So we just felt like Roadrunner was more of a reach a broader audience to kind of push our message, you know what I mean? So it as far as like... Uh, I'd say they, you know, they all hit, you know, the message that we're trying to push. You know, I mean, as far as one that stands out, I love End Begins. I think that the lyrics for that are amazing. I'd say that one. Like, musically, for me, like, on that record, the, you know, the one that stands out the most is probably my favorite is End Begins. I love the intro to it. It's a good way to open up the record. It's got the sing-along at the end. It's got some good, obviously, groove parts. And, you know, the whole thing hits pretty hard, I think. Breed the Killers is awesome. I think it's uh, I think it's an underrated album in the the Earth Crisis canon because of that. Because it become it comes out in between the classic that everyone heralds as you know the best, Gamora's season ends, and then Slither, the one that kind of is you know uh, polarizing. I think it kind of gets uh, lost in the shuffle sometimes, and so hopefully uh, we can remind people yeah. of how awesome it is. You know, I was kind of just like going through some you know memories, and I was like, we had a good time off this record. We did a lot of cool things. Um, off this record, we did a Misfits tour. We did the Sepultura VOD tour, which is obviously amazing. Uh, I think we also got to play with Anthrax and the House of Blues in Chicago with VOD. So this, this record was like, as far as the touring, I think it really did open up a lot of opportunity and, you know, got to, I mean, you know, these are our idols, you know, like Anthrax. I mean, growing up, you know, I mean, me and Scott, you know, and my brother used to hang out and watch Headbangers Ball every Saturday night. And, you know, it's, it's amazing to, uh, you know, actually share the stage with these bands that, that we idolized growing up. And they're super cool guys. And everybody's always treated us with respect and, you know, like super friendly. And, you know, it was just, it's amazing. It was an amazing time for the band, you know, especially, like I said, it really opened up all that stuff, you know, and, and to be label mates with a lot of these bands too was crazy, you know. So just thankful we got to do it all at that time, you know what I mean? So, I mean, that show influenced, I mean, honestly, it's a big part of why Earth Crisis exists, you know what I mean? Like, just growing up and, you know, like, covering all these bands around that that show, and, and it was such a great time for heavy music. That era, like, you know, as far as that album and touring off it, was, it really was like, it, you know, it was kind of like that step into, you know, we just kind of, like I said, you know, we got to share the stage with a lot of bands that were like, can't believe this is real. Roadrunner really, we don't, you know, there's no regrets. It was, uh, I, if anything, you know, I wish we could have done more. A lot of amazing experiences and opportunities, even from the one record, you know. Earth Crisis, Breed the Killers, 1998 Roadrunner Records. It's a banger front to back. If you've overlooked it before, put ears to it today. If you always loved it, let me know on Instagram at meetmeetpod. New Earth Crisis 7-inch Vegan for the Animals coming soon. 
check out patreon.com slash meetmeetpod for episodes on your favorite Trust Kill and Ferret albums. Because to this oath and to these meeps, I am forever true. What else is true? I'm Ryan Rainbow. This is Meet Meep. And yes, that's the best that I could come up with. Bye. Meep, meep.